1: Do you know what romanticy is? Well, if you don't, then you haven't been in a bookstore recently. Definitely have been in an indigo or maybe on book talk because romantic fantasy is the powerhouse of the publishing world right now, along with just you know, romance novels in general. And with Valentine's Day right around the corner, we thought this is a great time to talk about why that is. So joining us now is Rania Husseini, Senior Vice President of Print at Indigo. Hi, Rania. Hi, Sumi. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, nice to have you back. Hey listen, What was the last book that you read, and how good was it? I'm actually
2: uh, in the midst of reading a, a number of, uh, of books, so let me try to think of the, the one that I uh, The what? Geek thing is actually one that is incredible. Oh. It was, it's a booker, It was a Booker nominee, and it is a beautifully written book, so I just finished that. Okay. I highly
1: recommend that. The beasting, yes. Okay, I'm putting that on my list. I was I've seen it around, and I haven't bought it. I just finished The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store by James McBride. Oh, beautiful, fantastic so book. Good. Yes, it Love is a, it. it's it's an incredible book. I read that a few months ago. It's incredible. It is so good. Okay, now we're going to talk about romanticy. What is romanticity? <laughs> okay, listen. Romanticy
2: is something that is. A cross section. So if you think about a, if you think about books as a Venn diagram, you have romance and you have fantasy, and in the center there is the crossover, and it is a beautiful place to be where you get fantasy and experiences that are life changing in new worlds, and you get romance included, and it is wonderful. People love it, and it is something that we've seen huge growth uh, growth in. Whether you're talking about Sarah J. Mass or Rebecca Yaros, like those types of books, are really crossing over genres, which is just beautiful. And
1: how huge are they right
2: now? Listen, all it, it, we've seen incredible growth in science fiction, fantasy, and romance throughout the pandemic and beyond. And if I look at just romance by itself, you actually we've seen double sales growth in the last two years, which is unbelievable. So we doubled and doubled again.
1: Okay. These are not the days of Harlequin romance books, right? Because <laughs> my mother loved a good Harlequin romance, but also just romance novels in general. I feel like they yeah. were being, you know, remember the covers and Fabio was always the artist. Yes, on Yeah,
2: exactly. Right. Trinch and it, covers that's what they're called. And, and that, those were actually beautifully illustrated. Yes. covers. So when you think about you know, thinking back to those days, you actually, there are so many people that love the clinch cover and love, that still actually enjoy that type of, of cover, you know, like the Nora Roberts, et cetera. Like you have very beautifully illustrated covers, the covers that had Fabio on them. But we've seen that actually really change and evolve in the last four or five years to have more modern, Uh, covers that that really have brought the genre forward and have made it much more accessible.
1: And so what is driving that this time around, do you think, for this popularity? Is it a younger generation that's buying these books?
2: Absolutely. And it's it's not only just a younger generation. I think what we've seen is that, you know, historically, when I was a bookseller many years ago (laughs) on the floor in in, um, one of our stores, one of the things that we saw is that we never saw romance novels on the bestseller wall. We never saw them in the front of store. And now it's crossed over so many generations. So younger generations are reading, but actually it's broadened it across all customer ages and all all customer reading routes. And so now you actually have in our top 20 books, it's constantly you see uh, romance novels making it um, into those books. And you have. People who absolutely loved their um, their authors, whether it's Allie Hazelwood or Carly Fortune or Tessa Bailey, they do come in. Or Anna Huang, like you actually see people that are reading romance novels and romantic throughout uh, the year. So it does peak in uh, certainly in um, at Valentine's Day but you see it consistently throughout the year.
1: Right. And so people are like lining up for these books, which was a phenomenon that I think kind of Harry Potter started, right? And yes. and I think bookstores like Indigo have really leaned into that, haven't they?
2: Absolutely. We, we had uh, midnight launches for both Rebecca Yaroff's book and for, uh, for Sarah J. Maas. And it was unbelievable. People came in, like the Sarah J. Maas launch last week, People came in in costume. It was so fun to actually have that kind of energy at midnight in one of our stores again. And I like I just was delighted to see how many people came in.
1: That is phenomenal. Okay, so then for Valentine's Day, do you really emphasize all that romance stuff in the store?
2: You know what? We, we do. But when you think about Valentine's Day, there's so many different customers. You can start with our littlest customers. So our little kids, you have... Love from Bluey, which is an an incredible book. You have Like So from Ruth Foreman, which is a beautifully illustrated book that is wonderful for kids. And then you can move into poetry where, you know, it's a wonderful gift to give to the person that you love or to read for yourself, whether it's Love and Misadventures or a book called Sincerely by F.S. Yusuf, who is actually it's a collection of um the the letters and poems that um uh that uh, t- a couple wrote to each other and he put together in a book and gave it on the day that he proposed so at the end it's it's a proposal like it's just such a delightful thing and then you have all the romance novels that People just buy because they love love, and we have it across the board. That we sounds have a, so beautiful, we have that a book. <laughs> beautiful book for everybody. It is, actually. I highly, highly recommend it. Okay, what was it again, so people can it's catch up? It's called out? Sincerely, and it's by F.S. Yousaf, Y O U S A
3: F.
1: Is the last name. All right. I wrote wrote that down right now as you were saying it. Uh, So if somebody wanted to kind of ease their way into it, they see this and they go, I don't even know where to start. What would you recommend, Rania?
2: Listen, I think you can pick up anything that you want and enjoy. I, I think the thing that is most beautiful about the romance genre today is that you can pick your spice level, as with everything else in life, and you can actually pick the the type of book that you want to read so if you want to start with you know whether it's Allie Hazelwood or Carly Fortune Carly Fortune is a Canadian uh- The stories are set in Canada. It's just, there are beautiful, beautiful books. And I would suggest that people just walk our stores. We have a spicy talk table. We have 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 romance. You have a spicy
1: talk table? What
2: is that? We absolutely do. And so if you want spicy, go to that table. If you don't, go to our other romance table.
1: And this has really changed the way bookstores sell books, hasn't it?
2: Absolutely. You know what? One of the things that's really, really cool is that um, when when TikTok really took off and we saw BookTok really take off, one of the things that we saw is that there are authentic recommendations by people like us, individuals who are talking and sharing the, the books that they love. And through that, people have started to get to feel very confident in in buying books that perhaps they weren't buying before or dipping their toe in areas that they hadn't before. And romance has really benefited from that experience.
1: Okay, so you've got a, a whole variety of stuff there. What is the biggest time of year for selling books, would you say?
2: Oh, it's really hard to say because the fall is always the big time when when all the big authors come out and when all the prizes are. But you know what? In Canada, because winter is not uh, well, maybe for you guys, it's, it's a little bit better for for the rest of us where we're sitting at home in in, you know, in our in our uh, pajamas and reading socks and actually reading winter is the time that that a lot of Canadians read. And so this is actually the perfect
1: time for people to be picking up books and reading. Especially romance books, right? Especially romance books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to add one. I have not, I have a, a daughter in her mid-20s and she is deeply into this. So that's how I kind of keep track of what's going on, right? I go down there and I saw right away, boom, this week, she had that new Sarah J. Mass, And I haven't read any of them. And so is is it worth checking out, do you think, for somebody like me? Absolutely. I, I Listen, I think, I think... If you uh,
2: want to dip your toe into fantasy, romantic is the way to start. I shall
1: try it because you said so. Rania, thank you so much. <laughs>
2: Thank you. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Love Have talking to you, day. too. It's
1: Rania Husseini, who's a senior vice president of print at Indigo, talking about that genre of romanticcy. Also, great time of year to go bookshop. Well, any time of year is good to go book shopping too. But they've got a whole bunch of Valentine's Day stuff there, too. But I remember as a kid growing up, and my mom loved those romance books. I used to make fun of her for reading them right? Because they had those elaborate pa- covers and, you know, there's always some woman fainting or something and all those Harlequin romance novels. And now they are back. They've called something else. They're written differently, of course, but they are back in a very, very big way. Uh, yeah, we talk love to talk books here on the show. What was the last great book that you read? I will make my recommendation again that I was just telling Ronnie about, it is um, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store by James McBride. Just a fantastic book. She recommended to me a book, The Beasting. I'm I'm going to check that out for sure because I love a good book recommendation. What is yours? This is Mornings with Simi. Now I have to start this segment by apologizing to Vaughn Palmer from The Vancouver Sun. Vaughn, I am so sorry. Our, our producer, Greg, is off his game. He forgot about Macho Man.
3: Oh, well, you know, I guess I can forgive that once in a while. Oh, it can't. is an important part of our culture. but
1: uh, I, No, it makes know me realize it's Friday. That? No, it, what it does for me is I go, oh, it's Friday. That's what I think <laughs> when I hear it.
3: God, I'll be rid of them for two days. That's,
1: that's the best news. <laughs> no, I'll miss mm-hmm. talking to you because there's so much to talk about. Can we start with this uh, Selena Robinson story this morning?
3: Yeah, I'm really sorry about this one.
1: You know, yeah? Uh,
3: I mean, this is an incredibly divisive issue. What's going on in the Middle East? There's well, nothing you can say about it that isn't divisive. She didn't help. We've also though. had, you know, we've had ample evidence why people need to be careful about this. So, uh, Selena Robinson uh, made a comment that I don't think needs to be repeated. She's apologized for it, and I see the premier has uh, said her comment was wrong and unacceptable. But he has also come out with a statement saying that he uh, thanks her for apologizing relatively promptly. I I guess what else could the Premier say? He had twin gaffes on social media himself last weekend. And as far as we can tell, he didn't fire anybody over that. So I guess he had to do it. Um, The only thing I would say is Selena Robinson has been under a lot of pressure, a pressure that most of us can't really imagine. Uh, she has been outspoken in her comments about Israel, and she's Jewish herself. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure she regrets this seriously, because it didn't help her position or her cause. She's wow. a cabinet minister. And, of course, she's under fire for something else as well, as you know, Simi.
1: Yes, I know. The thing is, Vaughn, you nailed it when you say we know this is a super contentious issue. It has been for months and months and months now. So you would expect a cabinet minister to take more care when talking about such a
3: divisive issue. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I would have expected the premier's office to be carefully vetting David Eby's statements on Holocaust Day to make sure that they didn't accidentally post his statement on sympathy for Muslims over the Quebec attack. So, yeah, I, I think that's the context for all this. Uh, On the other matter, which I think is also being reported, and people should be aware of it, uh, Robinson is under fire, and this is as a cabinet minister in charge of post-secondary education. She's under fire from two associations in this country representing university professors and college instructors for what they say was her inappropriate intervention into the Langara case. So that is the instructor, English instructor at Langara, who uh, celebrated Hamas's attack on Israel, who was investigated, was suspended or went on leave, investigated. Uh, The college forgave her for it or said that she didn't cross the line with her comments. And the next day she was fired because the college said in celebrating her victory in the case, she did cross the line. So that's the context. The right. minister, Robinson, is accused of having intervened in that case and gotten her fired. Robinson said that did not happen. Langara made its own decision. Robinson did go on social media and expressed disappointment that the instructor was reinstated, but she says she did not intervene Again, she's the minister for advanced education for our colleges and universities. Um, I happen to agree with her that the colleges and universities have been more forgiving of uh, attacks on Israel than they would be on other subjects. But having said that, as the minister, she has to walk a fine line. I'm not surprised that...
0: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
4: If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you.
3: are now calling for the premier to fire her. I mean, she needs good relations, uh, yeah. especially on the issue of free speech with the universities and colleges. So she's had a very bad week.
1: Yes, and I just think if the shoe were on the other foot, if it had been, you know, yeah. if the NDP were the ones saying that another party had done this, I think they would be very loud in, in calling for the same thing.
3: Yeah, but there's, you know, Simi, there's a lot of whataboutism on this too. Like I think people are saying, ah, would the universities have been forgiving of the protesters if they were denouncing rights for indigenous people or disagreeing with right. Black Lives Matter? I think there's been a lot of crossing the line by pro-Palestinian demonstrators. I don't think the hate laws have been enforced on them the way they would be on someone else. But that's whataboutism. We live in a time when people... When their own set of views are under attack, they kind of circle around and say, yeah, well, the other side gets away with it worse, and that doesn't settle the problem at all.
1: Well, I have a feeling that's uh, not going to go away today anyway. You're right, Uh, very bad week for Selena Robinson. Uh, But let's talk a little bit more about the government in particular. We had Michael McAvoy on yesterday, BC's Information and Privacy Commissioner. And boy, this story, like, let's talk about the state of the freedom of information system in this province.
3: Yeah, I mean, McAvoy is the watchdog on access to information, and he put out a report this week that's as (laughs) withering and scornful as I've seen from a watchdog. The headline in the report is, the New Democrats have violated their own law on access to information 5,100 times in three years. That's a lot. And the- The worst violator of the law is the office of the premier. So he looked at the last few months under John Horgan and the first few months under David Eby. So we've got two premiers. The law they're violating is the one that says when someone files an application for information, the government has to respond within 30 business days. The response time from the office of the premier in B.C.? 292 days. Now, according to my research on this, there are only 260 business days in a year. So instead of responding within 30 days, David Eby's office and John Horgan's office were delaying up to a year in responding. Uh, McAvoy McAvoy is just withering on this. He says, look, if the government wants people to obey the laws it passes, it should actually obey those laws itself and they've not been doing that
1: it really was shocking reading through this and and talking to him about it because and also keep like remembering that david eby was once the head of the civil
3: liberties association he's a lawyer right right. a lawyer needs to be reminded that you have to obey your own laws
1: and we thought this was going to happen right when when premier john horgan they brought in that ten dollar fee everybody said this is what's going to happen
3: Well, yeah. And of course, that's the other thing. And you talked to McAvoy about this yesterday, and he makes a very good point on that too, is they brought in a $10 fee and they said, oh, you know, we need this fee because there's way too many frivolous applications. But the good news here is we're bringing in the fee for applications, but that's going to make it easier to reduce the wait times for responses, right? Well, they've gone in exactly the opposite direction. The NDP's average response time, that's across the whole government supposed to be 30 days. It's 85 days. That is the worst response time that the commissioner has found in the 13 years he's been auditing response times. And that, of course, goes back to the time when the Liberals were in government and the New Democrats were swearing, by God, these Liberals are utterly disrespectful of the law. <laughs> well, we're going to improve this and tighten it up, right? Well, right.
1: Uh, now, I understand Dr. Bonnie Henry had a report come out uh, yesterday and she was talking about safe supply.
3: Yeah, so this was a marathon event yesterday, a very long technical briefing, and then a press conference, and the release of several reports, and all very important, and far be for me to criticize the volume of material that was released. But to me, the real significance of this presentation yesterday comes down to one sentence. Diversion is occurring. It is a common occurrence with the safe drug supply. And I want to highlight that, Simi, because I vividly remember the denials last year when Global and other news organizations reported what reporters had been hearing from people in the streets. The safe supply was being diverted to other users or sold and exchanged for more dangerous drugs. It was happening I remember the reports. You do too, I'm yep, sure. Cindy. I do. And I remember the denials. Oh, there's no evidence. Exactly. Oh, it's just anecdotal. Oh, you know, the, the problem with the grand experiment in safe supply and decriminalization is that the people in charge won't admit the downside and the flaws. So Dr. Henry admits in a report that, yeah, you talk to the people that are actually on the delivery side of this experiment. And what they say is, yeah, there's diversion, and they give you reasons for why. Okay, and now we understand that it, what it is and that it's happening, but again, I, I, it undermines support for this experiment because it confirms that the advocates are not telling us the whole story about what's going on. So I welcome the report. I would note. But in spite of all that evidence that there is diversion, Dr. Henry is saying uh, we should continue with the safe supply. Uh, We should expand the access. Uh, We should continue going down this road. Okay, she gives advice. The government can decide whether or not to accept it. But I think the diversion story is going to make it harder for the government to expand the program, just as the open drug use problem is making it harder for the government to expand access to the program.
1: I also thought it interesting that she thought even calling it by safe supply or, or you know, is that she recognizing that it's gotten to a point now where the public has has uh, decided that they kind of don't like it when it sounds that way.
3: Yeah, I mean, they kind of put quote marks around it when they say safe supply. Yeah. yeah I, I, but you know a program is in trouble, Simi, when they start talking about changing its name. Well, Exactly, too, you know? yes. I I you know again look it's only been a year and the government remains committed to what it still calls an experiment and I can see the argument that it hasn't had time to produce results one of the things that Dr. Henry again concedes is there isn't enough research to show that this is working the way it was intended well That's a good position for the provincial health officer to take. She's waiting for proof and evidence. She's not going to get ahead of it. That's caution. That's welcome. But again, if you're a politician going out there and defending a program that so far hasn't shown results, and in fact, one stat is going in the wrong direction, more people are dying... I think it's going to be very, very hard to persuade this government to go any further on this until they've got some data showing that what they did is working. And so far, the data just isn't there to be persuasive.
1: You'd think that after a year, they'd be able to point to something.
3: Yeah, I mean, they point to a few things, you know, some of it is like, okay, well, we're not arresting as many people. That's true. You know, the police are not harassing people. That's true. Uh, There there is evidence that the people, some of the people that are actually getting the safe supply welcome it. They're less at risk. They're, They're still with us. So that's all the kind of things you can point to that tends to be somewhat anecdotal too. You know, when, when the advocates hear something they don't like, like diversion, they say, oh, that's just anecdotal, right? Well, it's all anecdotal at the moment because it hasn't gone long, long enough to have the persuasive data that everything is working. And again, that's a lament uh, that we see in these reports too, that The politicians who launched this a year ago, federal and provincial, said, we're going to be really thorough about gathering data on this because we know that everybody's looking at this experiment. Well, I would have to say politicians elsewhere are not sitting there saying, you know what? Those British Columbians have got this thing figured out. We should do the same thing. I think they're still waiting to see some results that would be persuasive. And meanwhile, Simeon, you've been reporting it this week. Oregon, which got there first, is reversing direction because the public won't stand for the fallout from all this. And I think the experiment deserves a chance. But I have to say, unless the government can find ways to contain the fallout, including open drug use, it's going to be very hard to defend this. Yep. The clock is
1: ticking. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is
3: Mornings with Simi.
1: It's time of the week where we check in with Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, to talk about the biggest stories out of the United States in the past week. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Let's start with the testimony, and I was kind of riveted by some of this too, is that lawmakers going after some of the biggest social media CEOs and tech titans in the country. It was pretty interesting to watch.
4: Sure, it was. Uh and we've been here before. We have seen uh many of these uh tech CEOs testifying before the House in the past, before the Senate uh, in the past. What I think was different this time is some of the exchanges were far more heated. We heard from Senator Lindsey Graham saying that uh that these CEOs had blood on their hands, whether they like it uh, or not. But at one point when Josh Hawley, Senator from uh, uh from Missouri, very uh kind of leaning far to the right, really went after uh, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg, um, and forced him to, to stand up and apologize to the families that were in the room. It was one of those moments where you kind of stop talking and realize that maybe for a moment, one of these social media platforms was going to take some kind of responsibility or accountability. It wasn't really the case. There was some big pushback. But ultimately, um, you know, the question is going to be, is this going to do anything to change anything?
1: right uh it was it was good to watch though like you'd like to think that there would be some kind of recognition for these ceos that there is some concern here
4: sure and and two of them said that they would sign on to a plan to do better uh, when it comes to monitoring for bullying uh, with kids on the platforms three of them including zuckerberg said no they're not going to because they feel that the restrictions could be too broad and it could infringe on first amendment rights um i think the thing to watch here is what will happen. There has been no meaningful legislation brought forward by Congress to be passed by the president. There is still nothing that's being brought forward. So are we kind of in a cyclical cycle here of the CEOs coming in, getting grilled, Congress does nothing, right. and then we start over?
1: OK, well, let's talk about the uh, presidential campaign. It certainly had a very interesting week, some new polls that were out, to, But are people already tired of their choices?
4: They absolutely are tired of their choices. Look, I mean, when you talk about a broad poll here about just favorable numbers of Trump and Biden on the assumption that Trump is just being treated as the nominee for the party, even though only one caucus and one primary has been held here, um, 37 percent think have favorable numbers for for Trump 40% have favorables for Biden nearly a quarter of this country has an unfavorable view of both of these candidates and at the end of the day Trump Biden fatigue is setting in nine months and change before the election which goes to show that there is just no interest for for what these parties have brought forward
1: so um is that why Nikki Haley is kind of hanging in there
4: Well, I mean, a couple of things. She's hanging in there, A, because she still has donors lining up behind her willing to give money. B, she's lining up – she's staying in the race because it's a thorn in the side to Donald Trump. Um, And whether or not she sees herself as being, you know, an actual potential here is one thing because the states that she's running into, particularly South Carolina, it's a winner-take-all state. So, I mean, even if she comes in, you know, a couple of points, if she doesn't take it all, she doesn't win the state – It's, it's interesting because whatever her game plan is, it's working for the Biden campaign because the longer she's in the race, Trump focuses his attention on her and his spending power on her and not on Joe Biden. So the white, rather the, the Biden campaign, uh, is taking advantage of this by saying, look, they're, they can fight it out right now. I can spend massive amounts of money just going after Trump.
1: Right, because it does look like uh, President Biden is, is kind of stockpiling money already, right, for his campaign.
4: Some of, some of the most money that a presidential campaign has had uh, in history. Uh, and it's because there's been such a late start to President Biden getting into uh, this game here. You know, he's being pushed and prodded by people, including the former President Barack Obama, to say, look, you got to step this up a little more. Um, we may see more money being spent in the coming weeks. Uh, and it's because Biden is not doing very well. Uh, I mean, he is struggling in in some of the swing states, particularly in the state of Michigan, where he was yesterday to try and get um, you know some backing from from the big unions that are in Michigan, but Michigan also has a massive population um, when it comes to to Arab Americans and Muslim Americans, uh, and they are turning their backs on Biden because of his foreign policy um, or foreign policies when it comes to the Israel Gaza war, and without a state like Michigan. Biden may not have a path to the White House. So the money is going to be spent and it's going to be spent to convince people that he is the right choice.
1: Mm, okay, interesting. Uh, let's talk about some of these warnings that came out this week from the FBI. They're talking about hackers.
4: Yeah. Uh, so the, the Justice Department uh, took down a, a group that had infiltrated uh, the United States, essentially basically. Uh, Malware had been placed by this hacking group on older routers and modem systems in the United States that, that didn't really have the ability to keep up with software updates. And they say that these were kind of pre-operational to be able to go after not quite, you know, election matters and government issues, but to take down things like uh, infrastructure related to transit or water or communications in local areas, um, simply as a way to, to have the Chinese government, the PRC, Beijing, be able to get their hands on information from the United States that they may be able to take back and use against the United States or to strengthen their own position here. So the FBI is saying, look, this is not being talked about enough on the public stage here. We need to be worried about what China is doing now, but what they may be able to do in the future.
1: That's why I guess I heard that statement from Joe Biden saying that he had gotten an agreement from the leader in China that they wouldn't interfere in the next election.
4: Sure. And I think we can take that, you know, for for whatever it may be worth that China says they're not going to interfere in an election, even though there is significant concern about China infiltrating um, Canadian politics and and Canadian elections. You know, take that for what they will. China says it's not going to interfere with elections. But does that matter as much if China is able to interfere and take down communication systems and and, and transit systems and, and any other network in the United States or be able to steal state secrets. You know, it's it's kind of trading one bad for the other bad.
1: Right. Okay. And I know there are some other stuff that we were going to talk about, but I have to I have to, Reggie, you understand, I must ask you about Taylor Swift. Because how could I not when it seems like she has suddenly become Uh, much more than just a pop star who's dating a football player.
4: Sure. And and this is all because right-wing media um, has, mostly Fox News here, has said that Taylor Swift is some kind of uh, a Pentagon psyop that's being used (laughs) as a State Department asset to to change the minds and infiltrate the minds of Americans, to change their votes and, and, and put them more into the Biden camp. I mean, look.
1: Reggie, are people okay? Are people OK? Uh, down I mean, the,
4: the best the best line that I heard on this uh, was who would have thought the Democrats had country music and football in their corner? Um, and ultimately, look, Republicans are just doing what they can because there's a threat being posed to stuff that's espoused by Republicans and Donald Trump. And people like Taylor Swift have um, an influence. They are able to change minds. Fox News is saying, look, she came up out of nowhere. Obviously, she's been around for, for you know, like 20 years. I'm not a Taylor Swift fan, but I know who she is. And she has um, reach. And that's concerning to Republicans because that reach could impact younger generations that may be turning on the weirdness that's coming out of the GOP, weirdness that's now going after people like Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, who have huge backings.
1: I know. First of all, I can't believe you're not a Taylor Swift fan, but also <laughs> that they think that there's a conspiracy that she's going to come out during the Super Bowl and endorse Joe Biden. Like, th- why are they alienating these female voters like that? Well,
4: not only why are they alien but I mean, she endorsed Joe Biden in 2020. So this is not some kind of new thing that she'd be coming out here to do. She's made political endorsements as far back as 20. 18 to go after senators. Now, the endorsements she made didn't follow through. But ultimately, she tries not to go into politics. But even if she does, there's nothing to say that it's going to change the outcome of how the United States moves forward. And at the same time, these Republican influencers that work for places like Fox News and other outlets, I mean, they have just as much of a reach maybe as someone like Taylor Swift, but they're not seen as a problem. It's only the Democrats who are seen as a problem for leaning into the music industry, or for just <laughs> having allies in the music Reggie's industry. He's like, I it's, don't
1: know, it's something. It, it's, something. It, I mean,
4: it's just. I, I mean, I've always been. I've been. A, I'm, I'm a. I'm a Travis Kelsey fan. I've been a Travis Kelsey fan for many, many years. I'm less so now because this is all getting too much for me. But, but really, I mean, yeah. I get. Yeah, I'm a. I'm a oh. '90s music. Kid. I feel like I'm I should have started
1: with this topic. So. I really should have. Uh, Reggie, thank you for your time this morning. <laughs> thank you. That's Reggie D'Keeny, our Washington Port correspondent for Global News. This is. It feels like what the United States has come to these days.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: DC, as you know, is one year into a three-year pilot project focusing on providing a safer supply of drugs. And no matter what some former politicians might say, I still believe we're doing it because we are trying to bring down the number of toxic drug deaths which have reached record levels. I still believe that is the reason why so many and reluctant people got on board with this idea or didn't overtly disapprove of this idea because of the high number of deaths, and we want to try to do something about that. But increasingly, many people wonder, is bringing down those overdose deaths even possible, doing things the way that we are? So we wanted to talk more about that now. Nicole Luongo joins us now, the Systems Change Coordinator for the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. Nicole, thank you for being here.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: What do you think drug decriminalization means?
0: Well, there are actually a range of policy models uh, that kind of exist when when we refer to decriminalization. The primary purpose of decriminalization is to reduce engagement with the criminal justice system. So it is not the same as actually displacing the toxic, unregulated drug supply with a safe and legal supply of drugs. Those are two different concepts.
1: Okay, so do you think that what are we misunderstanding the idea? Like, are we kind of set up to fail then here in B.C.?
0: Truthfully, there is a bit of that, and there are many reasons uh, why we've been kind of, as you say, set up to fail. But one of it is government communication. The provincial government has been very unclear from the jump with the public about what decriminalization is and is not and what it is intended to do. So I think that is set up kind of this opportunity for, as you already alluded to, the opposition parties and some, some of the conservatives at the federal level, to kind of point to these still escalating numbers of drug-related deaths and say that decriminalization has failed when decrim alone was not designed to actually reduce death.
1: Right. But it was, this was a, a huge, challenging thing for any government to convince the general public to go along with, though, right? And, and they did. The public did say, OK, well, let's try this. We'll see if it works.
0: To an extent, yes. Unfortunately, the model of decriminalization we have in B.C. is very kind of incrementalist. And because we have things like thresholds, which means that someone can only be in possession of a very small quantity of some drugs some of the time in some places, many of people who are using drugs, particularly those who are poor and homeless, have not actually been decriminalized.
1: So what is the better approach do you think? Like what what do we have to do to actually bring down the numbers?
0: Well, the only way to stop drug-related deaths from the unregulated and illegal drug supply is to displace that drug supply with a regulated supply. So what we're really talking about is a sea change in how we think about and legislate drug use. A hundred years ago, alcohol was prohibited in Canada for a brief time. And many of the patterns we see around other drugs today were present during that period. People continued to drink. But what happened was that, A, we saw this kind of explosion of organized criminal activity around things like illicit rum running, and B, those who consumed alcohol were at imminent risk of things like blindness and death because there was no quality control or oversight throughout the alcohol supply chain. So we need to take those lessons and apply them to other drugs now.
1: How do we do that?
0: Uh, Well, that starts by kind of looking at the federal piece of legislation that currently makes much Uh, drug use a crime. That's the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. And we have had people in the public health spaces calling for the abolition of that piece of legislation for a couple decades at this point, if not longer. Um, If you look at the history of the CDSA, it was really designed to criminalize drugs that were associated with racialized immigrants and Indigenous peoples. And from that, for over a century, we have just seen this Increasing and ever increasing kind of unpredictable and volatile drug supply because the second we criminalize something, that incentivizes organized crime to supply it.
1: Okay, here's what I wonder about Nicole because we know from the stats from the BC Corner that the people who are dying of overdoses are overwhelmingly male, you know, middle aged or so between 18 and and 54 and they're dying alone in a private residence they're not dying out on the street or you know they're dying alone in a residence so that that strikes me as people then who are hiding their addiction these are people who don't want to admit even to their friends and family that they are uh, struggling or they do have an addiction how does this reach those people
0: well it's actually a misconception that most of the people who are dying are addicted to drugs we know that most drug users as with most alcohol drinkers use drugs episodically or recreationally. However, because the drug supply is so compromised and so unpredictable, those folks are dropping dead, as you've said. The, a demographic that has been hit so hard, that is rarely discussed publicly, are, as you've said, men in the trades. And these are people who are stably housed, who are gainfully employed, who might use drugs on the weekend or maybe using drugs to deal with things like chronic pain that comes from physical labor. And so things like addiction treatment aren't actually relevant for them. They don't need addiction treatment, they need to not be at risk of dying.
1: But do you think that, I mean, they're hiding their addiction. So why would they go looking for a place that they can get a safe, uh, non toxic drug if they're even hiding their addiction? That would be like, oh, I have to admit that I'm even doing this.
0: Well, I would interrogate and consider uh, or kind of prompt everyone to interrogate why we assume that everyone who uses drugs is addicted to them i'm not saying i'm that not i'm hydrated.
1: saying even if they want to recreationally use they still have to go get that safe supply how can we make them do that
0: Well, that speaks to kind of the very limited scope of safe supply as it stands right now. Um, The numbers around safe supply is estimated there are about 4,200 people in the province who have any access to any prescription. Now, compare that to the estimated 250,000 people who are using illegal drugs. And we can see that that is a drop in the bucket. So safe supply as it exists. You're correct. Right now, is only available to people who have been diagnosed with a substance use disorder, and so that excludes the majority of people who are using drugs who would benefit from a safe supply, but who don't need addiction treatment services.
1: Okay, so you're saying that in order to fix that, we need to make it wide, more widely available.
0: Yeah, that's correct. The you know outgoing uh, BC Chief Coroner Lisa Lapointe has made it very clear that a way out of the crisis in the short term is making drugs available to people that are safe through Compassion Club models. And when we say Compassion Club, what we're referring to is a not-for-profit framework for distributing drugs. So we're not enriching pharmaceutical companies. We're not allowing things like advertising. So we're not treating it like alcohol in that sense. But for people who are already consuming drugs, those drugs should be available in the quality and quantity that they are seeking.
1: Right. That seems like a tough hill to climb right now, Nicole, doesn't it?
0: It certainly does, but we will continue to advocate for it because it truly is the only way to stop the death.
1: All right. Well, Nicole, thank you very much for your time. No problem. That's Nicole Luongo, a systems change coordinator for the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. Obviously, they have investigated, looked into, studied kind of this safe supply issue, and they believe that you know, as Dr. Bonnie Henry said, as, as Lisa Lapointe has told us, the retiring BC Chief Coroner, that more of it is actually what's going to help out with this toxic overdose, uh, drug overdose crisis that we have there. But that's the hurdle because people are already getting frustrated. The general public is with how things are right now. I don't think I'm not sure the public can be convinced that more is what we need. And yet I have yet to see anything as I was talking about with Nicole there, That this will get to the people who actually need it the most, which is the people who are recreationally using, hidden from perhaps friends or family members, using alone, Um, you know, overwhelmingly, we know men in the trades are doing this, and they are the ones most at risk because they are the ones who have the highest number of fatal overdoses right now. So what do you do about getting to those people to getting to that group? Let's start that conversation.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: It used to be that we didn't really talk about childcare as publicly and openly as we do now. And it used to be that businesses were not on board with talking about this, but boy, are they ever. Because childcare has become an integral part of our society. Helping people find good child care means that people can go to work and not worry about their children being looked after. But we still have a crunch, no matter how much we talk about it, right? And so is one of the answers to helping solve that. Perhaps having younger kids go to school, for instance, a four-year-old, maybe they go to preschool, but is a longer preschool, perhaps what would help in this situation? We're going to talk more about this idea. Craig Alexander is with us now, the first chief economist at Deloitte Canada and president of Alexander Economic Views. Craig, thank you very much for joining us.
5: Well, it's a real pleasure, Simmy.
1: Is this something that you have been kind of looking into the economics of perhaps a longer preschool day for kids? Uh,
5: it, it is. Um, I've been actually doing research on early childhood education um, for the better part of uh, 15 years. Um, it, as, you, as you said in your introduction, childcare and, and early learning programs are very much an economic issue. It, it, allows, it allows parents the, to be more engaged in in the labor market, it also helps to improve the skills that children have and prepares them better for life. and when you when you look at the economic returns on investments in this space, it, it works out that for every you know tax dollar you you put in, you get between like a dollar and a half to two dollars of economic benefit back. The real challenge we're having is enough capacity. And the federal government has negotiated um terms with the various provinces to 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 help subsidize um early early learning and childhood programs, but we're we're still having difficulty get it getting it to the point where we'll be able to say that we actually have universal coverage and that, that all children will have the, the best start in life possible.
1: So what is the answer to that? What should what has been overlooked, would you say, Craig? then in, in dealing with yeah. these issues, are there different ways of dealing with this?
5: Yeah. So I I, I think that the public school system tends to get overlooked. Where, you know, when the federal government was rolling out its 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 its, pro, its latest programs, it's really a, around subsidizing um, private private licensed ch- childcare locations. And the, the reality is the school system can actually help in a number of ways. So, for example, there's going to be parts of Canada, particularly rural and remote parts of Canada, where it isn't financially viable or attractive to run a private uh, childcare centre. Um, as a consequence, you start looking at, well, what, what could we do to increase coverage in those rural neighbourhoods? Well, public schools are in every neighbourhood, right? So they can actually help eliminate the, the childcare deserts that we have right now where there's many more children than there are spots available. Um, we know schools can maximize inclusivity and, and diversity because they don't screen, um, they don't screen children or, or parents in terms of gaining access to their, to their programs. Um, there's a gain to be had from the fact that schools can provide a continuity of, of, of early learning. In other words, if you start the children off at a younger age, um, they, they will naturally proceed through the, the public, you know, a pre-kindergarten program into a kindergarten program into grade one. And, and that makes it much less stressful on children as they, as they earn, as they learn those those early foundational skill sets.
1: But Craig, don't we solve the same problem then in terms of staffing? Because that has been the huge issue, right? Like, where do you find the people to to make this happen?
5: Yeah, and and the sad reality is we deeply underpay our early childhood educators. When you when you look at the the market the market wages that early childhood educators receive, you know, it's, it's often, you know, only slightly above minimum wage and that makes it much less attractive to, to pursue a a career in early childhood education. But more importantly, it it creates a problem that that many early childhood educators who get their diplomas in college, they work in the sector for a few years
3: and then they leave
5: and and so one of the advantages of the of expanding, um, expanding early learning to earlier years in the public school system is you end up with early educators that are paid against a public sector wage hmm. profile with with public sector benefits.
1: Right.
5: That- and that that is much more attractive. It also creates additional competition for the private sector, pulling up wages in in in, in that sector as well. Hmm.
1: Well, that's an interesting idea. Craig, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning.
5: Oh well, thanks for having me.
1: That's Craig Alexander, uh, the first chief economist at Deloitte and president of Alexander Economic Views, uh, talking about one of the ways he believes we could tackle our childcare crunch. Interesting ideas. If you want to weigh in, send me at com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: It used to be that if you wanted to learn about history, you probably had to read a book. Everyone had a set of encyclopedias in their house for that very reason, right? Nowadays, though, you could just look it up online. Maybe you don't even have to look it up online. Maybe it comes to you in an algorithm on TikTok or some other video on some other social media. Now the problem with that is, well, how accurate is that? Like, Who are these people telling you about history? Sure, there's some good stuff in there, right? Like maybe introducing people to subjects like Anne Frank or the marvel of engineering that is a Roman aqueduct, but it isn't always accurate and it can be subjective, right? So we wanted to talk more about this issue. Colin Horgan joins us now, a writer and communications professional in Toronto. Uh, Thanks, Colin, for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. So do you think learning about history on social media is a good thing?
6: Um, It can be, I think. Um, I think that so uh, there's a piece I wrote recently in the walrus uh, that came out this week to to this very topic Um, and I think the conclusions are mixed right and as you say sometimes uh, the the material that you get and the content that you see on something like TikTok or Instagram is done by someone with a PhD or with a degree in history and they you know can sort of relay accurate information and a lot of times, though it's not, and just like any other stuff you come across online, you kind of have to be wary of what it is, so it can be good because it could expose people to more information than they're used to, but just like anything else, it can be kind of bad too.
1: I guess it's hard to be wary right for when for some people, they're learning about this for the very first time, and to them, they're like, "Oh, this is so interesting
6: totally I mean, I think this is one of the one of the reasons that history is so interesting online. You know, unlike a lot of other topics, um, you know, like so like you know culture or music or movies or whatever. Um, sometimes history is something that people learned in high school and then, you know, abandoned because it was boring and they didn't really pick up on that much in the first place. And they're coming at it again, you know, sort of brand new um, and discovering things that they didn't know before, which is great. Um, but again, you're kind of in a situation where, you know, without those sort of the, the training that you would get to think critically about all, of these other, all this other information that you sort of know innately, you know, you come across new in, information about history and maybe it just sounds kind of right or that it could be plausible. And, you know, who are you to, to know otherwise? Um, so, it, it, yeah, right. I mean, just like it, it's a problem.
1: Where can it go wrong, Colin? Like you've got some examples perhaps where, look, it proved to be a bit of a challenging situation when you do it this way.
6: Yeah, I mean, one of the problems is that a lot of it's used for um, conspiracy theories. For one, for you know, if 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 you if you've been exposed to any conspiracy theory online, you'll know that they usually back it up with, "Well, did you know that you know the aliens were the ones who informed the Egyptians on how to make the pyram- pyramids?" I mean, it's not true, but it sounds interesting. <laughs> I mean, of course,
1: um, and people have been saying that for a long time.
6: <laughs> yeah, I mean, and a lot of that stuff does get recycled, right? Like the moon landing being faked. All this stuff is kind of old, but it it gets re packaged and and redone in in these new sort of more compelling ways. And you suddenly have this whole stream of information that's completely bonkers, but it looks good and it's compelling and people kind of get sucked into it. I mean, why wouldn't you? It's fascinating.
1: Right. When people are using the modern day conflicts for clicks, essentially, right? Um, And they're putting their side out there. It's almost like people aren't learning about the entire history of something before they're commenting on it and making videos.
6: Well, right. I mean, it's, and it's like anything else, right? Like, you know, your your personal knowledge of a topic, if it's only informed by a few minutes of social media, it's probably not going to be that deep, right? Like, admit it. Um, and you know, when it comes to things like, certainly recently, you know, the war in Ukraine or the conflict between Israel and Hamas, you know, these are these are really there's a really deep history in both of those conflicts, and it is difficult sometimes to really parse what you should be believing in terms of where this conflict came from or you know how it's you know what the history is of it. With you're only consuming social media, the problem is where else do you get your information from, right? Like that is the that is the real problem. Is that this is where it's this is where people are. So
1: can you teach you know, critical you thinking? Yeah, can you teach critical thinking that way on social media? Because people who do like those videos of crit, like conspiracy theories, they they believe that is critical thinking.
6: Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I mean, probably you can't, really. But I think there's a general, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that there's a general awareness that not everything on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook, or whatever, is to be believed. I think even recently, just this week, there was, a, there was a poll about whether people believe all the health information that they see. And the answer is broadly kind of no. People still trust doctors and physicians and stuff like that. So I think that probably, you know, if you're out there and you're seeing this stuff and content on TikTok or whatever, check the person's you know credentials if they're a phd yeah probably they know what they're talking about um to some extent uh, and if they're not you know maybe move on and be like all right i'll i'll look up that one a little bit more
1: yeah looking up more is always a good idea how much of a concern do you think is ai with this kind of stuff
6: yeah i mean there's a there's a there's a threat with ai just as there is in, in in a lot of other you know uh, content creation right like photos um You know, the Taylor Swift thing is a whole, you know, discourse about that this week. But when it comes to history, there are ways to create photos and images that look historical, look like they're representing something real from the past, but they're not. So there's a few of them out there that are, you know, they they faked a a massive uh, photos of a massive earthquake uh, in 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 Vancouver, basically. So uh, those don't, that didn't happen uh, yet. And, you know, but there's photos that that exist that make it look like it did. And, you know, in, in 10 or 20 years, if somebody finds those, it's going to be difficult to know, you know out of context whether that actually was true or what what it really is
1: do we do a good enough job on social media of even providing a fact-checking response i get i get you know text messages and stuff almost every day from people i know who send me something and go is this true and then i have to explain to them whether it is or it isn't right like go through it and so i wonder it like is there not a place where people can easily find this or is the internet just all about trying to convince you of a particular point of view
6: I mean, like, wouldn't we all be, wouldn't it be nice if we all had somebody who we could check in with on everything, right? Like if you had a, if you, if you had something like yeah, that I your got life, enou- I got enough them. people
1: doing that already. So, <laughs> okay.
6: Yeah. But I mean, I think like, can, can we, you know, is there a way to find, is there a way to sort of teach this Is there a way to reassure people? No, you just have to be kind of on your toes. I think the, the assumption is that like, if you go online, if you go on TikTok, Twitter, these places, um, there's a lot of people trying to pull the wool over your eyes, um, and it's not always the case, but it is the case a lot of the time, and you have to be very careful. Uh, I don't know – I mean, I assume – I like to assume the best of people that, that we are, by and large, very careful when we go on to these things, but you get, you get taken in, don't you? Oh,
1: so true. You get kind
6: of sucked in, and, it, and it's so convincing, and it's so compelling after five or ten minutes, you just you know you're down the wormhole, and your critical thinking is gone. And, the and it pro- happens.
1: And the problem, as well, too, is that with these algorithms, is that if you watch it, just a couple of those videos, say on TikTok, all of a sudden all your videos are going to be like that. So it's hard, it becomes right. it becomes harder for you to find something else.
6: For sure, and you know like, that's the old it's the old adage, right? Like the more you say, the more you repeat the lie, the more true it sounds, right? And so if all you're seeing all day is the same content, yeah. It's a risk that you start to just—that is your worldview—that starts starts to become even not if it's not everything you see. If it plays enough in the back of your head, you start to put line, you know, start to connect dots that don't exist, right? You start to think, well, I saw something strange about like oh the way that you know whatever, and and you think, well, maybe this other person who's saying something kind of weird is is right because I heard this other really weird thing that seems connected, and it's all BS. But it doesn't sound like that after a while.
1: Right. But also, I think it becomes for people, like you were saying, look for the PhD. Well, people feel like they're gatekeeping then, and they don't necessarily want to hear it. So you have to get around that issue, too, is that I don't necessarily want to have to go to a PhD, like a title, to get Mm -hmm. information.
6: Totally true. I mean, look, like what, what was the argument in Brexit? People were sick of hearing from experts, right? <laughs> yeah. I think that's basically right. what's happening now. I mean, that is always that's the that's the, that's like the, the the ethos of the Internet is no one wants to hear from experts. But look, like there's a reason people go to university. There's a reason people do these things, spend years of their lives, you know, researching things like histories, because we, we have we have to look to certain individuals and groups at times like this to say, like, how do we navigate ourselves through a society? How do we not fall apart, you know, as a, as a, as a show, I guess, to maintain our social cohesion?
1: We have to do that. It doesn't feel great, but sometimes it's necessary. Very true. Uh, Colin, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. No problem. Thanks the, for having me. Colin Hargan is a writer and communications professional in Toronto. He's written this great piece in the latest edition of The Walrus about this issue of getting your history off of social media. There are some positives to it, there are some negatives to it. And I do have, uh, you know, family members and friends who text me and send me a story and go, oh, is this true? And I think, well, did you click on it and read the entire story. Like, was there anything suspicious in it, first of all? But I did recently learn about a great tool for this. And if you Google the words, Google fact check, Google has actually has a new tool in their toolbox, uh, where it will help you search down, search more information on a particular topic if you're not sure about it. So if you just Google, Google fact check, they have an entire site there for you to help you do that. If you don't have that person who can help you decipher that information on your own.